At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Start clean with Clorox, because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Oh, the charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. It's Friday, May 15th, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com and on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. This week's episode is also sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to Harry's.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, coupon code inquiringminds. I love a good drink. It makes me very happy. And you probably heard the quote, wine is the proof that God loves us from good old Benjamin Franklin. It's actually a misquote. He actually said, behold the rain which descends from heaven upon our vineyards and which incorporates itself with the grapes to be changed into wine, a constant proof that God loves us and loves to see us happy. Maybe what Ben is really talking about is the process as much as the end product. And that got me thinking that beautiful elixir in my glass is the result of thousands of years of science, engineering, and technology. From the yeast that makes the alcohol to the engineering that goes into distilling it to the chemical effects of the alcohol in our body. So I sat down with Adam Rogers to talk about all things booze. Adam is the author of Proof, The Science of Booze, and an editor at Wired. He takes us through a brief history of booze, and I was surprised even at the intricacies in something as simple as yeast. Have you even thought about all of the science that goes into your glass? Well, no, although I know, at least I have the impression that people who make booze really are chemists and really are interested in the science. But, you know, we'll see how that pans out in the interview. But, um, you know, there's also a big element of society when it comes to booze. It's not always considered an elixir. And for a lot of people, it's the devil's poison. Well, I, it makes me very happy. So this is going to be a joyous conversation about booze today. 
I'm partial to the stuff myself, too, admittedly. Well, that's going to be our interview for today. But first, anything catch your eye in the news this week? Yeah, you know, I don't, you know, if you've listened to the show for a while, Kishore, you know, you know me pretty well. You probably have gotten the impression that I'm a bleeding heart liberal. You know, I, I wear my uh, biases on my sleeve, as it were. And I've been a huge fan and supporter of President Obama since the day I first heard about him. But I have to say, this week was probably the first time where I really felt disappointed. And this was, let me just read you the first sentence of a New York Times article that made me want to put my head on my desk. This is by Coral Davenport, and it reads, The Obama administration on Monday gave conditional approval to allow Shell to start drilling for oil off the Alaskan coast this summer, a major victory for the petroleum industry and a devastating blow to environmentalists. So this made me really sad because, as I think most of us know, President Obama has been talking a lot about climate change and how we need to fight it in the last few years, especially since he was reelected, that this was going to be a major part of his agenda. And to go and have his administration allow us to drill for oil in the Alaskan coast, in the Arctic waters, just seems like a huge step backwards. Does this you know, devalue all the work that he's done in investing in solar and wind and all sorts of sustainable energy platforms. Well, Bill McKibben, who's an environmentalist, uh, wrote an article in the New York Times, an, an opinion piece in which he argues that, in fact, it does, because the problem isn't just that, you know, we've gone to a point where it's going to be really hard to come back from the climate change that is ahead of us. Um, but we're only going to make it that much worse if we continue to take oil out of the ground. I mean, that's just going to create a bigger problem. And I mean, I know this isn't exactly science, but in some ways, it's it's it really relates to the way science, you know, we, we have a desire on this show to let us inform policy with science, let science inform policy. And it looks as though President Obama is very much understands the science and the science is, is pretty clear uh, that we need to change the way that we consume fossil fuels. And yet to go and, and allow a policy that completely negates all the lip service he made to climate science really just seems just seems off to me. I think we should have an environmentalist on to talk about Alaska because Alaska has become this point uh, where the debate is really raging. Because I don't think there's anything in particular uh, about Alaska that makes it special, except it's the fire point where this discussion is happening. Well, and it's also a part where the evidence for climate change is really obvious, right? The melting of, of the Arctic is clear. And I think that in some ways it, it really is, you know, it's it's the first round of, of changes that we're seeing um, that are easily attributable to global warming. So we should definitely have, it's been a long time since we've had an environmental scientist on the show. And I think um, I want to stress the fact that we should have an environmental scientist, not just an environmentalist on the show. Well, for my news story of the week, we need an environmental scientist as well, because I have more bad news about bees. Bees. Uh, researchers at the University of Maryland completed a survey and found 40% decline in bee population from 2014 to 2015. 40%. Are we getting any closer to really understanding? I mean, I've heard that there is a fungus. I've heard that this might be related to pesticides. I've heard all kinds of things. Do we know yet why so they're So what's declining? interesting is the scientists uh, in the survey did not attribute this to colony collapse disorder, They that the disorder itself is going away. But what they're seeing is an implication that the stresses upon bees, environmental factors, the varroa mite, uh, which you know infects their their young, 
uh, pesticides, especially neonicotinoids, uh, are inhibiting their ability to reproduce. And the uh, amazing part about this is the losses were significant in the summer months. And bees are used for commercial purposes in, in growing and pollinating everything from almonds to various fruit. So having a summer decline has a huge economic hit as well. So there's incentives from multiple industries and the environmental community all come together to solve this. And there's a big shrug right now. There's so many different factors that are uh, causing the decline. Uh, I think what we really need to do, uh, and the thing that worries me, is that we have bee fatigue. We've been hearing about this story for years now. And this week, I also saw the most beautiful, moving piece about bees that I've ever seen. It came from Anand Varma, who is a uh, photographer for National Geographic, and he has a spread about bees in an upcoming issue. He also gave a talk with Pop-Up Magazine at the TED conference, and the TED video is up, and we'll put it on our Tumblr, that showed the development of the first 21 days of a bee's life in 60 seconds. And you can see a bee grow from just that, that bare pupa up into a bear, uh, up into an, an adult bee, and even see their brain develop in and time lapse. It's amazingly beautiful and reinforced the notion that we have so much work to do on this topic. Well, already bees are my son's favorite animal. I think that's because it's really easy for him to say, but you know, he sees bees everywhere and it would be very sad if 10 years from now that wasn't the case anymore. Um, but yeah, I wondered, you know, we are having a month coming up in June in which we're going to be talking about emergent technology. So we're going to do four shows about some of the coolest tech that's hitting, you know, our culture in the next couple of years. And I wonder if we're going to get to the point where we're just going to have little artificial robot bees. That sounds amazing and really cool. And, neat. and I think it's the perk that I needed after reading this study, which really got me sad. But is it amazing if we could just have little robot bees uh, going around pollinating? We wouldn't have the need for real bees. That seems like a little sad for me. But, you know, maybe be cool. <laughs> I'm sure there's a science fiction novel in there somewhere. So with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with your interview with Adam Rogers. Did you know you can refinance your student loans, save thousands, and make the whole process incredibly easy to manage? Our sponsor this week, Ernest, has created the first radically flexible refinancing experience that can save you thousands on your student loans and put you back in control of your payment terms. Their product helps customers save an average of more than $12,500, with rates starting as low as 1.9% APR. Ernest never charges any fees. That means no penalties for paying off your loan quickly and no charges for origination or changing your terms down the line. You can set your own terms, change your payment amount and date, or even skip a payment, all with a few clicks at meetearnest.com. Ernest can do this because they're a new kind of lender, one that looks at things traditional banks don't, like your potential, to give you the lowest possible rates. Ernest will never pass you off to a third party. Their on-site team is your customer service partner for the life of your loan. It takes less than two minutes to find out how much you can save, and they have a special offer for our listeners. You get $150 cash back when you refinance through meetearnest.com slash minds. Don't get stuck paying more than you have to. Check out meetearnest.com slash minds to take control and quickly see your personalized rates today. This episode is also sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. They've produced an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. This is a one-of-a-kind new hybrid mattress that uses two technologies, latex foam and memory foam, which results in just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, there's a risk-free trial and return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They send it in a box right to your door. It's kind of amazing. 
And to give you an idea of just how much less these are selling for, a twin-sized mattress is only 500 bucks, and a king-sized mattress is 950 So to get $50 towards any one of these obsessively engineered, amazingly comfortable, and made-in-American mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. Once again, that's casper.com slash inquiringminds, promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind. So make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door. And these aren't just for men anymore. I use Harry's razors all the time. And not only do they provide a really good, close shave, but also they look really pretty too. Their starter set is just 15 bucks. That includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. Personally, I'm a little old school, so I prefer the cream. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give first-time customers five bucks off if you use our coupon code, inquiringminds. That's harrys.com, coupon code, inquiringminds. Adam Rogers, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. There's a quote that you often use when talking about this book. Civilization begins with distillation. Famous William Faulkner quote. Yes. And great drinker. Noted noted professional drinker, William Faulkner. Yes. Why does civilization break, begin with distillation? Well, I, I like the quote because I think, as, as great a drinker as Faulkner was, I think he meant it as metaphor first. And I wanted to invert that. So he meant it. I think, as as a, to say that civilization is about boiling down. It's about bring, taking something to its essence. It's about um, getting past the the stuff you don't need and getting right to the things that you do need. A, a process of concentration, which is what distillation is. Right. I, I wanted to to take him at face value in a way and say civilization is distillation because the process of inventing distillation, of coming up with distillation and then turning it into a uh, a commodity business was, was the way that we went from being homo sapiens to human beings in order to have, in order to have a glass of bourbon in front of you, a glass of American whiskey, you have to have so many of the processes that we take um, to be fundamental to what we are as civilized people in place to make that work. You have to have an economy with, with a, with a leisure oversupply. People have to have money. You have to have, Time, because you have to store stuff, which means you have to have credit because you're aging something. So you're saying, I'm going to keep something for 10 years before I can sell it. So you have to have an economy in place. You have to have farms. You have to have a place where you are, um, where you have domesticated a crop because you're growing the, the, the grain that you're going to make into the bourbon. You have to um, have a way to transport things because you're going to move big processes. You have to be able to work with wood. You have to be able to work with metal. You have to have technologies. You, you've invented something. You're adding something new to nature. But drinking has been around for centuries or millennia at this Absolutely. point. So this isn't, you know, some sort of new technology by any stretch. Well, I'm making a distinction, and it's a it's a subtle one, and I, I maybe I do a little uh, I do it a little bit for effect um, between distillation and fermentation. Fermentation is the process by which yeast turn sugars, simple sugars, into alcohol and carbon dioxide, and that happens naturally. Um, if, a, if, if yeast get into a, a grape, 
in out in the world, a wild grape, it, it'll ferment. You'll have a grape that'll be wine inside. It's the if um you know if yeast ferment a grape in the forest and nobody's there to drink it, does, do you still get drunk? Um, well, then it's just a waste of a grape. Then. It is. A, it is a little bit of a waste of a grape. That's true. Uh, so and, and that happens naturally. That happens without us. Now it's a process that we. Uh, humans, I say we as if I do it, it's not just me, but it's a process that human beings have, have domesticated, taken control of, have adapted to our own ends, but, but it happens without us. Distillation does not. Distillation is something that we invented that, that if, in my favorite story that a, that an alchemist named Maria the Jewess about 2000 years ago in Alexandria came up with, figured out how to do and that, and, and built the machinery to do it. They required knowing how to work with metal and required knowing how to work with fire. It required knowing how to deal with something that would be explosive unless you could handle it. it required understanding heating and cooling and all kinds of physical processes that we, um, we wouldn't consider to be particularly highly advanced since we have little black rectangles of glass in our pockets that have the power of a supercomputer now. But, but 2000 years ago, they were state of the art. That's something that, that human beings brought into the world. And, and, and it happened at the same time as we became, um, citizens of, of cities, civilization. Let's start with the conversation about the yeast, the engine of this, our, our domesticated brother in this process. The yeast is the one that's really doing a lot of the initial work yeah. before we touch it. And I want to get into this notion of how this little fungus has really grown up with us in a lot of ways. Well, the thing I love the most, actually, about the fact that yeast are the engines of fermentation is that human beings were partaking of the products of fermentation for um, almost 10,000 years before they figured out that yeast were the things that were doing it. Um, Did they have any idea, the the early humans, about what was going on? Well, they knew there was stuff. They knew there was a, um, there was a substance that you would try to use again and again to take your juice, to take whatever fruit juice or, or um, you know, paste of, of grains that you had made and that would transform it somehow. But, but it's, um, well, here's a, a little bit of telling etymology. The book's full of like, here's where the origins of words come from, because it's a good way to explain stuff. You know, we call pickling fermentation as well, but of course it's a very different process than making alcohol. It's, it's actually, um, acetic acid and lactic acid. It's, it's bacteria mostly instead of yeast. And, um, before people understood that yeast were the agents of alcoholic fermentation, bacteria were the agents of pickling fermentation. Um, they, they they thought it was all the same thing. They were transformations that were mysterious. Um, and in fact, uh, some people thought that um, the, the process of decay of, a, of something that was dead, that was decaying, was also a kind of fermentation because it was a transformation they couldn't understand. How does one thing turn into something else? Well, I don't know, right? Like you, people just didn't have an explanation until Louis Pasteur came around and, and did some of the first science to figure it out. But, but well before that, um, human beings were um, were taking this stuff that they didn't know what it was and using it again and again and again in a process of domestication, very similar to the way that they were domesticating plants and domesticating animals, to say there are, these things have traits, and we don't know how those traits are transmitted. They didn't understand genetics either. But we know that if we take the two things that have the traits we want and let them breed, we get something that still has those traits. And if we don't let the stuff that has the traits we don't want breed, we don't have those traits anymore. Um, and that happens across human history with all sorts of organisms, all these things that we live with. Dogs, horses, great. For thousands of years, it was operated that way as an accident almost. Mm -hmm. There was yeast that were just doing their thing. And yeast then turned into an agent uh, that we started to manipulate yeah. down the road. And yeast are an amazing creature. It's one of the most studied creatures in all of science uh, because of uh, its properties. It's the model we use to study uh, 
basically all of eukaryotes in a lot of ways in right. any research lab. So what was that shift to where we started to utilize yeast as a tool? So two things happen um, over the course of, let's say, 100 years. Uh, first of all, um, better scientific instruments mean that people can begin to see that there's something alive down there. Van Leeuwenhoek invents a microscope. Other people follow on his work. Um, that was all controversial because the microscopes were so crummy. Nobody knew what they were really seeing. But there was something down there on the micro scale doing something. And it became a business, became a big business. So you end up with a world where instead of just every town having a brewery or a winery, where you have people importing and exporting internationally. Um, and so uh, in, uh, in France, you have a blockaded France where they're not allowed to import any alcohol. So they start making their own. They don't have any access to sugarcane because they don't have access to, to the cane being grown in the Caribbean or in um, North America to some extent. So they resort to beets because you can get sugar from beets. Oh, that sounds terrible. Uh, well, once you have the sugar, you don't really know, but you beat sugar, sugar, and they're trying to make alcohol, mostly industrial alcohol, not really so much for drinking because they know that they can transform certain kinds of sugars and, and they don't really understand the difference between this kind of sugar and that kind of sugar, but they know there's different kinds of sugars from different kinds of sources and certain kinds of sugars can be transformed somehow by some process into alcohol and carbon dioxide. Well, so then in this, this is a story that's probably not true, but it's a story that got told in Pasteur biographies in later years. Uh, so in the town of Lille, where Pasteur has become a, an up-and-coming young chemist who's studying the optical properties of molecules, he's, he's studying the way light passes through molecules and changes. And in the process of that, he discovers that the same, what seems to be the same molecule under some scientific conditions can actually be different. He's discovered optical isomers. Right? And he's interested in studying that. And sugars are really, a, sugars and alcohols tend to play um, in that world a lot. So he finds out that one of, one of his students... The student's father uh, has a, uh, a facility for producing alcohol. Some of the tanks are working very well. Some of them, the process is going bad. They're spoiling. But nobody knows why. And Pasteur says, I'll come take a look. And so this is, I love this because this is, I say this in the book, this is like, this is, uh, you know, the Beatles when they were still uh, in Liverpool. They, he's not, he's not big yet. You know, he's he, not Pasteur yet. He's not he's, Pasteur yet. He's just Louis. Yeah. He's, he has this pre-rabies, pre-pasteurization. There's nothing named after him yet. He's just a, like a smart up and coming, hardworking scientist. And he goes in and he looks at all of the, pro all the products of this facility under the microscope, does tests, can't figure out exactly what's different, but says, you know, there's different kinds of bugs in the spoiled stuff and in the not spoiled stuff, clean out the tank, kill what's in there, start over. And, and it's the beginning of him starting to figure out that, that, that yeast are doing, there's something alive in there and that they're doing something chemical. It's the beginning of biochemistry. And at that point, there was a real schism in science between the chemists and the biologists um, because the chemists thought that everything was an inorganic process and the biologists thought everything was organic and nobody really understood how those two things could be connected because they hadn't figured out enzymes yet. And, and this was the beginning of that. This is Pasteur saying there's a chemical in there that, that living things make, and that chemical can do things. And th so this is the beginning, not just of, of, uh, of understanding yeast, but it's the beginning of understanding an entire field of, of science. Yeast are incredibly difficult creatures to manage from the perspective of that they breed like no others, and they interbreed with themselves like no others. Yeast are constantly changing. Yep. 20 generations later, you got a different strain, basically. 
So I'm sort of surprised that we went from this process of having just yeast that are just part of nature, wild yeast that come in and, and make whatever, to a more controlled environment where it's the same yeast over and over again. That's right. And so that doesn't start to happen until some decades after Pasteur figures that, obviously, but comes from the Carlsberg Brewery, in fact. So again, it's a brewery where they've got some of their beers working and some of their beer isn't. And a, and a biochemist comes in, a young biochemist, and figures out like, oh, there's different kinds of yeast. And this is the one that we want. This one makes lager. You know, this is the one we're going to keep. And so they had to learn techniques for making sure that the yeast strain didn't diverge from the, the, the traits that they needed. And even to this day, winemakers, brewers, distillers will argue about how important the yeast strain is. Some distillers, some winemakers, um, some brewers will say it has to be this particular strain of yeast because yeast don't only transform sugar into alcohol and carbon dioxide. They're also, they also have all kinds of other metabolic processes that are creating all kinds of other molecules, aromas, flavors that make something taste slightly different. The yeast that you're going to use to make a, um, a, a vice beer, a German vice beer style beer is very different than the one you'll want to make to make a, an IPA. Um, and, and that's similarly true for distilling. Do you, are you going to pitch a commodity yeast from some giant yeast maker, or are you going to have the one yeast strain that you preserve so carefully? Generations and generations. Yeah, that's right. You, there's this great story in the book where you visit a, a brewery that essentially gets hit by a flood and they lose their yeast and they have to go to the yeast bank. Yeah. They, they panicked. I mean, they, as the, the, the woman who was the, the head of their, of their facility said, she thought they were dead because this was all in the context of, of Britain's campaign for real ale, where you're making a, the, 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 um, the geo-specific kind of beer that they'll make in the UK. And, and they had this flood and they thought, and, and they were, they had all their, all their mechanicals were on the first floor. They lost the machinery you can replace, but they lost the yeast strain. Fortunately, they'd had the stuff banked in essentially a library and they could go back to this thing frozen, breed it up again and start over. This brings me to a question that I had just generally approaching this topic. When you say the science of booze, because almost everyone I talk to in the field, brewers, distillers, We'll talk about art and craft terms that are don't run exactly counter science, but they're a little bit away from that, that idea of rigor and reproducibility makes me nuts actually. Um, because, well, I'm trying to think of the, the different ways to tell this story. I'll tell, I'll tell this story two different ways. Um, uh, Charlie Bamforth is a professor at UC Davis, basically the beer professor. And he's in the book and he, one of his books um, a non-technical book, um, basically is a, a grape versus grain book. And he's asserting that beer is better than wine. That's his thesis essentially. And, and his, his case boils down to, pardon the use of that phrase here, particularly because distillation, but his case boils down to the idea that beer is the one that you can make reproducibly, you know, and say what you will about the flavor of a Coors or a Budweiser, which actually are beers that have their place in the world, even if you're a craft fan. Um, but you know it's going to taste the same every time, yeah, and that doesn't plant, happen. A plant in California is going to taste the same as a plant in Colorado, and and that that doesn't happen from artistry. That happens from chemistry. You know that's engineers making that happen, and it's hard. It is super hard when you have and you look at wine. You think, well, the best wines from the best vineyards, like they get it right one year, they don't quite get it right the next year. And from a, from a scientist, if you're being a, a cold hearted scientist about that, you look at that and go, like, then you don't know what you're doing. If that happens, you don't know what you're doing. If you can't make it the same, I'm, I'm overstating that case. I don't totally buy that as a case, but that's the, that's the sort of broad brush case. Now, now I will say, just, so here's the, the sort of friendlier way to say that. Um, it is true that about, uh, three quarters of the way through my reporting 
for the book, I stopped visiting producers. That I stopped visiting breweries, wineries, distilleries because that seems like the the benefit of writing. This oh, it's book. super fun! Oh, don't yeah, don't get me wrong. I loved doing it. I love those guys. Um, but as part of the reporting, I mostly stopped because I was finding that with with some exceptions, for sure, they didn't really know anything. <laughs> Which is to say, they knew how to make what they were making, but they didn't know why it worked. Almost nobody was. Almost nobody was doing gas chromatography mass spectroscopy on their product and comparing it to the year before. And if they were, they weren't sharing those results. The big places do it. They don't tell you what's happened. The small places don't do it because they don't have the money. They don't know how to do it. They don't have the know-how. Um, almost nobody was, uh, you know, you would say, well, so what, what are the differences in those yeast strains? I say, well, we, we don't really know. Well, what are the, what's the genetic basis for those differences? Trying to do that work now. Well, so, you know, have you, have you done the, um, you know, have you tried the, the, there's one, I talked to one researcher who came out of the Carlsberg lab who'd done some fMRI on the actual process of, of fermentation. So you could watch the different molecules appear and disappear over the course of the, the metabolic cycle, which is what fermentation is. He was the only person doing that kind of work and he was going to lose funding for it. You know, people just don't, the, 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 the research, the understanding that, that, um, that biology and biochemistry have of yeast and yeast genetics in terms of what you know as a eukaryote model organism, it's very different than the understanding that the industrial folks have of yeast, and they don't really share a lot of information. They have some different needs, but they don't really share a lot of information either. So, so um, what <laughs> when I pitched the book, um, part of the pitch was yeast is a model organism. People know everything about it, and that very quickly turned into it. Turns out that in, when it comes to making booze, they don't know enough about it. They're trying to learn it right now, which became a, a I hope a feature, not a bug, um, because. Um, we, we very, as science journalists, I feel like we don't, we often don't spend enough time at the, uh, at the edges of understanding. We do a lot of the discoveries, not the unknown. I'm kind of blown away by this idea that we don't even understand how yeast produces alcohol in a really complete way. I think that what's more interesting there, I, I think there's, a, there's good understanding of the chemistry of the production of alcohol. There's no, almost no understanding. I shouldn't say there's very little understanding of the production of the other flavors that you want. You know? So all the phenols and esters that really give a lot of characteristics. And there's a um, a great anecdote that you have about going to visit white labs where they produce basically the same beer and only vary the yeast strain. Mm -hmm. And they're wildly different. We've I've done a very similar experiment here with a local yeast producer. And they couldn't be more different. This isn't the high-minded, oh, these taste a little bit different. There's a note of nut in this one that isn't. They're completely different. Yeah, they're utterly different. And, and, and uh, white labs is still working with Illumina, the big um, sequencing company, to try to figure out what those differences are, um, those those results. I, you know, every so often I go check in. Say, so you got anything yet? What do you got? Anything at all? Not yet. What's the push forward, though? There's great product being generated by a lot of these craft breweries and mm -hmm. distilleries right now. Is that knowledge uh, of the science coming into these areas actually going to improve what we get on the other side? So that is that is a critical question. Because if you go to, let's say, Rare Barrel in the East Bay, which makes these weird aged sour beers with, you know, ambient... For our listeners, they inoculate beer that's being aged in barrels with Britannomyces to sour the beer, and it's delicious. Super strange. Um, they don't really need any more science to make what they're making because they're making something that they're that is to their liking, to their to their tastes. Um now, the big commodity distillers want to know more. So you have a place like, let's say, Buffalo Trace that's running some very interesting experiments with aging, mostly to see if they can speed it up and still get good flavors because that's where it's one of their big cost sinks is keeping stuff on a shelf for eight years before they can sell it. Um, 
but uh, but they're not sharing that information because they're proprietary. The wineries, the big wineries, do a lot of research into yeast and into grape husbandry, as you would imagine. Um, and again, don't share it, which is a bummer for science. Where you go, well, no, but you should publish. Like, absolutely not. You know, the what BV is doing with with uh, with grape dwarfism to try to understand how to get a higher bricks out of a cheaper grape with less water is is their competitive advantage. Is that actually a competitive advantage, or are people just being hyper cautious in a market that is really competitive? Uh, I couldn't begin to guess. I mean, yes, it's a competitive advantage because you know fundamentally. This is especially true, again, with the distillers at the commodity level, more so, I think, than the craft beer, craft wine, but like more sugar equals more money. If you can get the sugar level up, you get the alcohol level up, you can make less of it, you can prove it down later. It's less true with wine, especially, you know, you're, you probably know California wine has a little bit of an issue with the wines getting too hot. They can get the, they ripen too fast, too much. They get bricks too high. The sugar levels get too high and you end up with, you know, with a, a Napa Valley cab with a 16% alcohol by volume or something. Um, which is probably twice as high as it should be really. Um, so you get a lot of flavor out of that, but people get plowed. And so that, so they, you know, what you'd love to have is a, is a yeast strain that would do to the grapes what you want it to. And there are people working on engineering yeast so that it will make lower alcohol, but still higher flavor. Those kind of things become competitively useful. Part of the reason this question is really interesting to me, and I'm going to paraphrase something from the book here, is you essentially say no one can identify all the single ingredients in a single glass of beer or wine or gin or whatever. Um, and so, but we still talk about it from a human experience in really distinct ways, like that bourbon had smoky notes or this beer has a real astringency to it. Uh, so is there a, I, I think this is a, an interesting place to be where the science can help actually answer that question, but I'm not sure if it actually can, because we have human experience in the way of that. Well, sensory science is fascinating, trying to link uh, scientific, what, what you and I would understand is data with an, with a subjective experience and to try to inform the subjective experience with the science and to try to conversely use the subjective experience to inform the science, which is what a lot of the, the um, people who study taste and smell UC Davis and elsewhere are trying to do what they're trying to do at Scotch whiskey research Institute of having, you know, a whiskey move through a gas chromatograph with a nose and mouthpiece at the end of it. So somebody can actually be smelling these molecules one by one as they come off and identifying what they smell like. How do you get that job? Do you have to be like <laughs> trained to be the whiskey sniffer? Well, if you want good data, then you really do have to train up your tasting panel so that everyone agrees what appley smells like or what black, what stone fruit smells like. We all agree. You and I agree that when I smell this and you smell it, both of us go, that's blackberry. And then we can go taste some wine and decide if it has the smell or flavor of blackberry. So there are sensory institutes that do this, that Absolutely. put people through training. Yeah, you have to. And then do we get to a point where there is actually some standardizations of, of flavors that we agree on? Getting there, yeah. I mean, there are people doing that work. Um, and it's, but it's, it is cutting edge. Um, to try to, to try to connect the, to, to take what is fundamentally an object metaphor problem from linguistics, which is to say, you and I sit down over, uh, forget booze for a second. You and I sit down, um, with, uh, uh with an apple, you know, with a beautiful gala. And you take a slice and I take a slice and you say, oh, it tastes a little bit. Uh, I actually I can identify some like a citrusy lemony flavor. And I say, oh, I, it, I actually kind of taste a, like almost a pear note there. Maybe we're talking about the same thing. We've just named it differently. Or even worse, you and I both say like, oh, yeah, yeah, citrusy note. But I'm tasting one thing and you're tasting another. And because we're not in each other's heads, right? Because what, what, what we're doing with, with smell and taste as distinct from, from any other uh, sense 
the chemical senses are very different than the other senses is we're saying this is like this other thing that we also detect with that sense. If you're talking about vision, you and I could look at a color and maybe not even agree that it was red, but we could both decide that's the same wavelength and and we can make that our objective standard. But we're not there yet with, no. with this kind of stuff. What I think is really interesting about this is you get to a point in the book where you talk about the sensory stuff, which is fascinating on its own, how people, uh, come to agree uh, agree on these um, on these different flavor profiles, but then there's the experience of actually drinking something. And I'm going to out Adam as one of the great nerds of our time <laughs> uh, because there's this uh, uh, picture. If you look for him on Twitter, of uh, a whiskey glass that you have from Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Blade Runner glass. And so does and, and you wrote this tweet. I know it won't make a difference, but you know, whiskey will taste better out of this glass. Does it? Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. So why does our experience matter? Like the environment that we're in, the, the setting, uh, the, the, uh, people that we're with make a difference in terms of how we taste something, especially something as complex as booze. I do think that, um, a lot of you and I, I think have talked about how a lot of neuroscience arguments tend to be just so arguments because the brain is so poorly understood. Um, now, but it is the case that, uh, smell and taste that experience are, have, have literal physical proximity in the brain to the, our centers of emotion and memory They're They are, they are literally tied up with one another. So we connect the experience of food and drink with, um, with moments, with, with emotion. Uh, you know, I, I, I will always connect a martini with my mom and my grandmother, um, and uh, I'll always connect little bits of liqueur with my great grandfather. I'll always think of, you know, uh, single malt whiskey is always for me a trip I took with my dad. Um, these these things are they always tie up for us, and those experiences um, become part of the sensory experience because we we connect the two. Now, you know, smell smell and taste the, the way we taste things. We really only taste five, maybe six tastes on the tongue: salty, sweet bitter, sour, and umami. Everything else is through the, through the nose is perceived aromatically volatile molecules. And, and the way that we do that, are, it's literally little, it's, it's the brain dangling down into the back of our nose and mouth. It's pieces of our brain stretched down there and coming into contact with the outside world. It's the only sense where that happens, where, where our brains are touching the, the, the sensorium outside us. And, and, and those, um, all those nerve fibers come back and tangle up with how we remember things. So, so for me, you know, my earliest drinking experiences were before I was drinking, I would see Rick Deckard holding this beautiful cut crystal angular glass in Blade Runner and think, well, that's how you drink whiskey. That's, you know, that's Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard drinking whiskey. That's what whiskey is. And so when I finally got those, when I finally got them for a birthday present just a couple of years ago, and as you say, that's the, the first thing I thought was, you know, it's not going to make a single bit of difference whether I'm drinking whiskey out of a out of a glass that I get out of the kitchen cabinet or this glass that I keep in the bar in the dining room, but it's going to make a difference. This The underlying thing here is that, uh, and you allude to this in the book, is that we don't understand some of the basic processes that ethanol has in our brain uh, let alone the other psychoactives that are in a, uh, a glass of alcohol, uh, from, you know, uh, from phenols and in, in bourbon, uh, on down the line in the same way that we do probably about cannabinoids or opiates or other, 
uh, psychoactive compounds. This was the single most astonishing thing that I learned when I was reporting the book. I thought that I would go talk to the neuroscientists and they would say, yeah, here's how ethanol works. And I thought, this is going to be great. That's going to be a great thing to explain. Here's how it works. So to get to that point in the reporting and have them say, we understand opioids, we understand opiates, we understand marijuana, we understand benzodiazepines, we understand, uh, you know, pick your poison, <laughs> recreational or therapeutic or both. We understand LSD, you know, hallucinogens, ethanol, eh, we kind of get it. Um, it's tough to study. So it's hard to study because of the effects that it has and because it has all of these ancillary emotional effects and connection to the outside world. And, and, and also hard to study because um, most of the research that's gone into it, candidly, has been research money dedicated to um, abuse. And rightly so, because it has costs a lot of money to society, but and not and so much on to the To make basis. a distinction, we're talking about uh, processes related to the brain, whereas functions of alcohol in the liver are much better understood mm-hmm. than, that, than what we're talking about right that's now. A, that's a good point. Yes. But the I, it still strikes me as so fascinatingly odd that we don't have an understanding. And it, is it just the fact that it's ethanol and we can't seem to track it in this kind of way? Or is it a you know, combination effect with all of these other things that are in, in the glass with the ethanol that are making it incredibly complex to understand? I might throw a little bit of uh, potentially unfair blame at the neuroscience community just for not really understanding how the brain works, much less how things affect it. Out we talk a lot on the show about how little we understand about the brain, which is cool. It is great yeah. from a science perspective. That's great saying, I don't know what you have in ethanol is a molecule that has an effect on the brain, but doesn't have an obvious receptor. So cannabinoids have cannabinoid receptors. They're opioid receptors in the brain. And you can, you can do work on that. You can say, Oh, this is a receptor because the brain is using chemicals, very much molecules, very much like these ones that you can get from an external source internally as messengers, as neurotransmitters. That's not the case with ethanol. It, it is a molecule that looks like, it looks, it looks enough like a benzodiazepine to affect some of those same receptors. It also affects different regions of the brain in different ways. The best explanation that I got was that it um, basically represses your repressors, that it sort of double negatives you so that the things that our brain usually does to keep us from being too amped up, too out of control, um, get repressed. And so now we can, we get the effects that, of ethanol that are familiar um, of uh, being sort of um, blissed out and not as in control as we usually are. I'm going to ask you an unfair question now. Is this something that you think we will understand at some point? Or is there not enough interest? Uh, I, put aside the, the scientific barrier for the second. Like, is, do we need to understand this? Is there motivation from the science community to understand this? A little bit. Some of the motivation comes from the direction of uh, wanting to treat alcohol dependency or replace alcohol as a chemical. So if you can figure out how it works, then you come up with synthahol from Star Trek. Maybe. That's fun. I, I, here's a, so here's, a, here's utter speculation. I think that the universe is about to change for studying marijuana because of legalization becomes a business. I think that science is about to blow up. I think maybe when that happens, maybe that cycles back around to booze. One of the things that's, that struck me as weird in, in reporting the book is that the, the companies that make so much money in, um, uh, in making alcohol have not spent money to study it in this way. 
So Charlie Bamforth at UC Davis is the Anheuser, is an Anheuser-Busch endowed chair. I think that's still his title. You know, the, the, the Gallo has spent, has built that entire lab at UC Davis. They're spending money. I'm not, I'm not saying they're not, but, but there's, there's, there's basic biology to be done here that I feel like it, the, you know, I feel like the, the seven major American distilleries, bourbon whiskey distilleries could look up and go, you know, let's just throw some money at these guys and have them figured out. And they haven't done that yet. And I think it's because they don't want to look like they're encouraging it. You know, they don't want to look like they're encouraging a thing that costs lives and has drunk driving and costs money to society and people get dependent on. It. I mean, look, this is a, this is a drug and it has those effects. I don't spend a lot of time on this in the book because that's not where the book lives and other people have written more eloquently about it than I, than I could. Um, but, but I think that's the, uh, that's the wall. And maybe when that wall comes down a bit because of marijuana, maybe that changes for booze. I still think it's uh, uh, interesting that you bring up the synthahol thing. And I'm going to out myself as a Star Trek nerd here. Because the one thing I remember uh, from Next Generation is they'll drink synthahol and then they'll break open uh, some real Romulan ale or some real alcohol. And they have a totally different experience that the synthahol never replaces the uh, the stuff that's craftfully made. So the nerd thing. Um, synthahol. The thing about synthahol was... That it was that it would give you the pleasurable effects of alcohol without impairing your judgment, so you could go back on duty, which is nuts if you think about that as a like that's less likely than the transporter. Like, how could that work? What would that be? What is that chemical? Um, and as you say, clearly it impairs your judgment somewhat because then they crack open the blood wine or the Romulan ale where they're getting plowed. Like, Lord knows what's in that stuff because ser- blood wine obviously seriously gets you wrecked. Well. For humans, <laughs> Klingons, it depends on your metabolism. Yeah, that's right. So after all of this, you spent years exploring the science behind this. It all started with a a fungus that attached to a Canadian whiskey fumes. Uh, and you spent years going to yeast banks and distilleries and breweries and laboratories. Do you feel like the exploration of science improved your appreciation and experience of just having a drink at the bar? For me, absolutely. I have a very real sense that it has destroyed the experience of whoever is sitting next to me at the bar. Uh, I think that I have ruined more people's experiences sitting at the bar saying actually and pushing my glasses up and and saying, well, you know, it's not really, it's not how that, it's like, oh, here we go. You know, I think I have, I think I've destroyed some people's willingness to have a drink with me, but, um, but my drinking experience has, has only gotten better every time I learn something new about it, because I think this is the way, um, this is to me, this is the way to, to interact with our, with the universe is to, to, to actually understand more about it. It is all well and good to take a, um, to take a half baked sommelier approach to wine or beer booze. Um, and to say like, Oh, you detect certain notes of, and this is because the, you know, the terroir there is on the, on the, the, south bank of this river is much more limestoney but we have the we have the cloud line coming in you know not really knowing anything and I, and i feel like you can ask this is a solution <laughs> this is it is a liquid with molecules in it that we can identify and we can describe their effects and describe where they come from and how they interact or if we can't do it completely yet we we could there's a you can imagine a pathway to doing that and that's how we understand the universe that's how we apprehend the universe as human beings. So getting back to where you started, if, if you ask me why is civilization distillation, it, it, it comes around the other way as well. 
we, this is the best way. Science is the best way that we have for understanding how the universe works. It works really well. And we can use that and sit down at a bar and understand why we're having the experience that we're having and still enjoy our Negroni. <laughs> on that note, thank you, Adam Rogers, for joining us on Inquiring Minds. It is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I was really struck when he said that most distillers and craft brewers are really still approaching this as art and they aren't incorporating science as much as they can. It was interesting to me to hear actually that contrary to my initial thoughts is that, you know, a person who's making beer, for example, considers himself a chemist or herself, that in fact, they weren't that interested in the science. They didn't care about the DNA lines of their yeast, which is surprising to me because now we can get that information. And in fact, there's so much work that's been done on yeast in particular that you'd think people would be, you know, using that information to create more interesting or different beer. So you're a musician and a neuroscientist. Do you feel like your work in studying how music affects the brain has actually made your music, your singing better? So for a long time, I kept those worlds very, very separate because I didn't want to be considered a dilettante in either. And it's only been in the last, I would say, five years that I've started to bring the two together. And it definitely has impacted my performance, I think, in a much more positive way. It's changed the way I approach my practice. And even there's been, you know, a resurgence in interest in music in the brain. Um, and some of the work has actually influenced my performance techniques, because I've seen, let me give you an example. So one thing that we see when people are enjoying music is that there are two parts of the reward pathways that are activated. Um, so one is the nucleus accumbens, which is the part of your brain that gives you a quick shot of ecstasy when you find something really pleasurable, you know, whether it be sex or, you know, cocaine or what have you. Um, you get that shot when you get the chills when you're listening to music. But what's interesting is that before that shot comes, another part of your brain called the caudate actually shows increased activity in the anticipatory part of the music. So musicians know that it's all about creating tension and then releasing tension, right? That's the storyline in music. And we can now see in the brain that there is this part of the brain that is responsible for tracking things in the environment that are going to lead to pleasure. And that's activated by the way that someone performs music. So that is an example of how the science has informed the way that I perform. I, may make, I make sure that I set up the anticipation of that release in a way that is, you know, compelling and obvious and hopefully more evocative. You're able to make these uh, assertions largely because there was investment in the basic biology around this. And what Adam said was like, we don't really see that around ethanol in the brain. You know, we're coming up to the same issue that we saw when we talked about aging, how people are interested in funding research that tries to look at the diseases of aging, right? Alzheimer's disease, you know, the, the dementias and so forth but not at the basic biology of aging. And that is just so backward, as we talked about on the show. It's like, you know, trying to find a cure for the cancer that's caused by smoking, but not looking at how smoking affects you, right? Not trying to curb that particular behavior. Um, so I think, I think that that is an interesting um, um, feature of, of, you know, the, this, and, and I'll, you know, of, of the funding that goes into understanding how alcohol affects the brain, for example. I mean, you talked about how we know a lot about how alcohol affects the liver, which is one of the big diseases that alcohol can cause, right? Um, but we don't know necessarily so much about how it affects the brain. We know a little bit. We know that it um, increases the activity of an inhibitory neurotransmitter called GABA, which essentially, you know, is, is responsible for kind of maintaining, uh, you know, keeping your brain in check, I would say is a, is a very generalized um, way of thinking about what GABA does. 
But, you know, and we know that some of the symptoms that we see in alcohol are result from this kind of, you know, depression. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting that we don't, you know, we, that, that there's a lot more complicated. I wondered though, if, you know, we know quite a bit more than Adam suggests. I mean, I, I was so shocked by his comment and I, I feel like there is, we do know quite a bit about um, the physiology of ethanol in the brain, but um, you know, obviously we're not hundred percent there yet. I think there's brilliance in the simplicity of the idea that alcohol makers actually invest in the space. There's something really interesting about that to me. And uh, as I'm enjoying my beverage tonight, I think that's what I'll be dreaming of. Thinking about how complex this liquid is and how it grew up with us, but there's so much more to learn. So what's going to be your beverage of choice? I think tonight is a bourbon night because it's game seven of a Stanley Cup playoff series. <laughs> well, I've been partial to rosés because it is the month of May. It just seems like that's when you should be drinking rosés. So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or at inquiringshow.tumblr.com. And you can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash podcast, And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, your favorite recipe for a cocktail, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And once again, this week's episode is sponsored by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly on to you. To get $50 towards any one of their obsessively engineered mattresses, visit casper.com slash inquiringminds and use promo code inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give first-time customers $5 off if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, coupon code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by amateur sommelier Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy.